Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Man, you guys can be seated. Good morning, Horizon West Church. We've got uh, some good things to cover in the scriptures today. I want to do something before we do that, which is to acknowledge that today and this weekend is kind of an important day and weekend for our nation. It's a day of reflection as we think back on a man, a Baptist pastor named Martin Luther King Jr., who at a time when it was the least popular thing to do, took a stand for righteousness, for justice, for truth. He, along with other members of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, civil rights leaders throughout the South and throughout our nation um, in that tumultuous time of our history, who blazed a path forward. We are in many ways eating the fruit of the seeds that they planted, the labor that they put in in those days. And so the scripture says, give honor to whom honor is due. This weekend and tomorrow, we honor a friend, brother in Christ, a Baptist pastor, Martin Luther King, Junior. If you've got a chance tomorrow, maybe you're not working or you have a different kind of day, there are events and parades and things going on all around town. I encourage you to get out, mix and mingle, be in the community, and honor what Scripture says, which is to honor those to whom it is due. Hey, we have come in today to uh, the last few weeks of our First Corinthians series, and we came up with a really creative title for this. It's called Final Thoughts. <laughs> Um, so we're just kind of, that's the, the grab bag, that's the kitchen sink, the umbrella that we're catching all of this under. Um, and I'll be really honest with you, as we have gone through the letter of 1 Corinthians, this is the Apostle Paul's letter to a church in Corinth, Greece. They were a little bit of a mess, and so Paul's setting them straight on issues ranging from speaking in tongues to divorce to church discipline to gender roles within the church. And I'll be really honest and tell you, I'm breathing a sigh of relief to have those subjects behind us, Okay. But a new burden has come in, my, in its place for this week and next week, which is not to preach something that is complicated or hard to understand, but to talk to you for the next two weeks in a total of about an hour, two 30-minute messages, about the single most important event in the history of humanity. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. Let me begin by reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start at verses 1 and 2, which is kind of an introduction, and then we will go from there. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain." Last night, Nikki and I had the chance to go out to Seasons 52. I know some of you love that place. We do as well. And we had gift cards. And so that's where we went. And uh, many of you know that I love steak. I love a good filet mignon. I had an idea just to make our money go further. I said, hey, Nick, let's just split a steak and then split something else and we can share. And she basically said, no, I like my steak dead. You like your steak alive. Therefore, we can't split a steak. Um, I like mine really, really, really pink, and she does not go for that. So had a delicious meal, mac and cheese, the whole works. It was wonderful. But as you know, when you go to a nice uh, dinner, they always save the best for last. So we finish our meal, pretty much nothing left, you know, that we could possibly consume. And then she shows up, our waitress, with 
a, all I can describe it is, is a spiral staircase of dessert deliciousness. It's just like got these little, I mean, you know, strawberry shortcake and Belgian chocolate s'mores and the works. And so we each got ours and we topped off our wonderful meal with the best part of the meal, which was the dessert. When Paul comes to 1 Corinthians 15, he's basically saying, okay, we've gotten all the nonsense out of the way. It's all important, but all the stuff you, got, you Corinthians are doing, let, me now, let, let, let us now get to the, the best part. Let me save the best for last because the best thing in all of the world is the good news of Jesus. And having navigated these complex and challenging issues, he says, now I get to do what I've been wanting to do the whole time, which is to preach to you, to speak to you, to remind you about the good news of our Savior, Jesus. Each generation has its memorable moments. Each generation has its really, really good news experiences. Perhaps some of you are old enough, you're part of the greatest generation, and you might even have memories as a young child of when in 1945, World War II came to an end and there was celebration in the streets of America. The, the evil had been destroyed. America had won the war. It was good news. Those of you that are boomers and perhaps maybe very young uh, Gen X at the time, you might remember the moon landing when we set out on this quest to be the first nation to get to the moon and John F. Kennedy said by the end of the decade, and so in 1968, Neil Armstrong takes one small step for man, and we land on the moon. And there was celebration throughout our nation. Many of us, if not all of us, remember in 2008, when an African-American man, Barack Obama, was inaugurated as the president of our nation. And whether or not you voted for him, whether or not you subscribed to his politics, there was a collective sense that our nation had taken a step forward. That what was not possible in the days of Martin Luther King Jr. had finally become possible. That progress had been made at the highest level. And there was a collective sense for many of celebrating good news. Uh, when, when good news comes, whatever context and whatever generation it does, it is natural for us to both want to celebrate it and to share in it. And Paul holds up the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and says, let's take a few moments to celebrate and to share in this good news. What I believe Paul does and what we're going to do this morning is essentially outline the good news or the gospel in three indispensable truths. I'll tell you what those are and we'll spend the rest of our time walking through that together. Indispensable truths of the gospel. Number one, it really happened. Number two, it absolutely matters. And number three, it changes everything. So number one, the resurrection really happened. Go to verse three of 1 Corinthians 15 with me. We'll read to verse 11. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he then appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one who was untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I, Paul, am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And God's grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them, though it was not I, but, by, but the grace of God that is with me. 
Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you also believed. Paul comes right out of the gate and says, what I am talking about here is of first importance. Which means that though all theology matters, not all theology matters to the same degree. We're a church that, that is very comfortable saying that there are other churches, other bodies of believers, gatherings of Christian worshipers who have different views than we have about things like speaking in tongues or things like the gender roles in ministry or what to do with a divorced person, how to navigate and support them through that. What, what does that mean for leadership? All of those issues. Genuine Christian believers can have very different views on secondary matters. But every Christian believes this, that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he was raised to life again. So how can you be so confident? Well, because if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. That the essence of the gospel are the truths that Paul is pointing to here. That Jesus died, that he was buried, that he was raised to life, and then Paul adds that he also appeared to people after rising from the dead. And so Paul basically is going to hone in on these four aspects, the death, burial, resurrection, and post-resurrection of Jesus. And the reason he chooses these four elements, yes, they are the most essential, but they also strike at the heart of two myths that had already begun to circulate in the first century. The first is this, in order to challenge the fact of Jesus' death, some had begun circulating that Jesus only faked his death on the Roman cross. This was called the swoon theory. There are still some skeptics who believe this, that, that Jesus wasn't really dead when he came off the cross. Now, one of the absurdities to that viewpoint is the fact that the Romans crucified over 150,000 people. They knew how to get somebody not just mostly dead, but all dead. Hashtag Princess Bride. That, that, they knew how to do that, okay? And so when they took Jesus from the cross, they weren't guessing, they weren't hoping, they weren't forgetting to check for a pulse. When Jesus came off the cross, he was dead. And Paul says, not only was he crucified, but he was buried. And you don't bury people who are still breathing. So, so Paul is going to include not only the death, which we often talk about the death and resurrection. He says, oh, and in between, you need to know that he was buried. And it sets him up for debunking the second myth. So first, the swoon theory. Secondly, to challenge the fact of Jesus' resurrection, some began circulating that Jesus' disciples stole his body from the tomb. The reason I know this is from Scripture itself. Matthew chapter 28 right before Jesus gives the disciples what is called the Great Commission to go into all the world with the good news, here's what we hear. Verse 12, when the religious leaders had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, Jesus' disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and we will keep you out of a whole heap of trouble. So they took the money did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now again, somebody could hear that and uncritically think, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, they just stole the body. But again, you got to understand how the Roman Empire worked. This was a high-profile uh, victim of crucifixion. This was a man who said, I'm going to be raised to life on the third day. Do you think they might have had a vested interest in the body staying in the tomb? 
Do you think the religious leaders might have had a vested interest in this person not being, you know, tricking people into thinking he was raised to life? The idea that 11 men, most of whom were fishermen and tax collectors, tiptoed up to the tomb of Jesus while the Roman soldiers with swords and spears and javelins were sleeping and rolled away a multiple thousand pound stone that didn't wake people up and stole the body is about as absurd as anything you could imagine. He was crucified. He was buried. He was in fact raised to life and Paul says, and here's the evidence, he started to appear to many, many people. He names him. He appeared to Peter. You can ask him. He appeared to James, talked to him about it. He appeared to the whole, in fact, Paul says in one, in one instance, he appeared to more than 500 at the same time. Now, those who study these kind of things would tell us that it is possible for a very, very small group of people to coincidentally be on something that allows them to have a shared hallucination. But A, I'm not sure that stuff existed in the first century, and B, it is impossible for more than 500 people to leave an experience saying, we experienced something together and it not be true. It's, it's impossible for them to have a shared hallucination. So Jesus appearing to more than 500 is key. And Paul says, and oh, by the way, many of them are still living. Now, it would be very convenient if this whole thing was a myth, if Jesus was just a good guy who preached some good sermons and then died, for the writers of scripture to wait just long enough for everybody to have died and then say, oh, you could talk to them, but they're dead. Instead, they say, no, 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 they're still living. There's hundreds of them all over the place. He names a couple. You can talk to him. You can ask him. So, so Paul is, is proclaiming this at this point in history because he wants to be validated. He wants to be verified. He wants people to check his work. And he says, you can do that because Jesus appeared to a whole lot of people after his death and his resurrection. One other significant fact I want to highlight, it's not in the passage, but it's important when we think about what is called apologetics or the defense of the gospel, the explanation of the truth of the good news of Jesus. One other significant fact is this. You might remember Judas, who was the one who betrayed Jesus and then went out and took his own life. That left 11 of the 12 men still living. And you may know that those 11 men ended up being scattered all over the world, Africa, Europe, Asia, they, they, they didn't band together and hunker down. They went to all parts of the world and all 11 of those men died claiming that they had seen Jesus after his death and resurrection, the, the living Jesus after he had been crucified. 10 of the 11 died because they made the claim. It'd been very easy, very convenient for them to go, okay, fine, we were making it up. Please don't cut my head off, right? Like that, that would be the convenient way out. And all 11 men gave their lives saying that it happened. Chuck or Charles Colson was a top aide of President Richard Nixon in the 70s, helped to engineer the Watergate scandal. You might, some of you remember or you've studied in history when the, the Nixon administration sent spies essentially into the Democratic headquarters, headquarters at Watergate Hotel and walked out with a whole bunch of boxes. Not the way that Forrest Gump portrays it. It's a little different than that, but it it is a historical thing that happened. And Chuck Colson was one of the engineers of that. Colson ended up going to prison for quite a while and in prison gave his life to Jesus. It was Chuck Colson that founded the ministry that is still alive and thriving today, though he has passed, a ministry called Prison Fellowship. 
where every day men and women are coming to know Jesus out of lives of brokenness and incarceration. And Colson, reflecting on the claims of the resurrection, said this, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. I want to make an important point here because you may never have reflected on this. If those 11 men were were proclaiming a lie, it's a lie they knew was a lie. Stay with me. They were claiming to have experienced it firsthand. If it wasn't true, they died for something they knew was not true. You'll hear people say, oh, the, the first followers of Jesus, they died for their faith. No, they did not. A lot of people do. The the men who hijacked airplanes and drove them into the towers at 9-11, they died for their faith and their faith was a lie. The 909 men, women, and children who tragically drank poisoned Kool-Aid in Jonestown, Guyana because of a cult leader telling them to, died for their faith and their faith was a lie. The disciples did not die for their faith. They died claiming they had experienced something firsthand. And if they didn't, they knew it was a lie. Uh, listen to how one of Jesus' closest followers, John, one of the 11, said, said it. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life, meaning post-death resurrection life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John says, you're hearing all this stuff about whether he did or whether he didn't, but I'm telling you, we saw him. We touched him. We ate with him. The one who was crucified before our eyes was risen to life and had fellowship with us. And this is why the writers of the New Testament come back again and again to this central theme of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And here's why. Number two, first, it really happened. Number two, it absolutely matters. Go to verse 12 with me, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul's already addressed a couple of these myths, but he's really going to hone in on this, this central particular problem, which is that some people were beginning to adopt elements of Christianity that they found palatable and reject the ones that they didn't. 
famously, Thomas Jefferson was one of these individuals, and I checked this to make sure it's historically accurate. This is a picture of what Thomas Jefferson's Bible looked like, one of our founding fathers. And the reason it looked like this is because Thomas Jefferson cut out of the Gospels every supernatural event, including all of the miracles, the walking on water, the calming in the storm, and all four, because all four Gospels claim it, all four resurrection accounts. And Thomas Jefferson, in his arrogance, said, I have now culled the greatest defining document of morals and ethics in the history of the world. Maybe so, Thomas Jefferson, but you cut out the part that really matters. No one is saved because somebody heard a good sermon. Nobody's saved because somebody had compassion on those who were less fortunate. We're saved because a man named Jesus was crucified and was raised to life again. And by faith in him, we have eternal life. This view, Christianity without a risen Christ, I believe is the fastest growing religion in the world. Lots of people love parts of our faith. They like that Jesus was a good moral teacher. He told people to love others, but they just get the proverbial scissors out and cut and paste and chop up and create the Christianity that they want for themselves. You might hear things like, I like Jesus' teaching, I just don't buy the whole Son of God thing. Or I appreciate that he had a voice for the marginalized, but I don't think he actually healed people or raised from the dead. And what I want you to know unequivocally is true, is that if Christ himself remained dead, Christianity is a dead religion. There is no middle ground. There is no Christianity without a risen Christ. That's what Paul says in verse 14. If Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Uh, let, me, let me kind of walk through his arguments. It's a lot of if-then clauses. He says in verse 13, if no resurrection, then Christ wasn't raised. Meaning, if you believe you come to the end of your natural life, you just die and get eaten by worms in the ground, if that's your belief, then you must also have to believe that Jesus himself never rose from the dead. That's number one. And then he says, if, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then the Christian message is false. It's a lie. Verse 15 says that. And then if the Christian message is false, there's no forgiveness of sins, that's verse 17, and if there is no forgiveness of sins, verses 18 and 19, there is no reason for hope. It's not enough that Jesus was a remarkable teacher. It's not enough that he was moral. Not enough that he had people follow him. Not enough that he made people feel good in his presence. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there is no good news. Each of those good news moments that I referenced earlier, including the, the end of World War II and walking on the moon, you know, each of those hinges on one particular moment when it became good news. In other words, in 1945, if first Germany and then Japan had not surrendered, then all of the lives lost, all of the money spent, all of the time enduring that as a nation and as a world is wasted because we didn't win the war. It is not good news. Similarly, if all of the, the time and energy that was put into getting a man to land on the moon, if all of that happens and Neil Armstrong doesn't put his foot down on it, it's not good news, it's a complete waste. And Paul says this is the place that the, re the resurrection holds in the gospel story. It is the singular event that if it did not happen, there is no gospel, there is no good news, there is no Christianity. Thank God that is not the way the story ends. I want to get to the third part that Paul is going to talk about, and it is this. The resurrection changes everything. 
I recognize that that phrase is way overused. This changes everything. There's not a lot of things that do, but I can tell you confidently the resurrection changes everything. Verse 20. In fact, if Christ has been, uh, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by also a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to him. And then will come the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, meaning Jesus. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Resurrection changes everything. In fact, Paul sees the history of humanity the history of the human struggle as fundamentally a struggle between life with God and death apart from God. He says, you remember in the garden, you remember the book of Genesis, most of us have heard the story of this man, Adam, who was told, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but chose to do it and immediately death entered the world. At that moment, Adam and Eve's bodies for the first time began to decay The leaves began to turn brown, like everything that was made for life began to die. And Paul says, just as that happened through Adam, so in Jesus, all will be made alive. In Jesus' resurrection, walking out of his own grave, we get to follow him into life. We followed Adam into sin, that came first. We followed Jesus into life. If you want a fuller treatment of this issue, Romans chapter 5, Paul goes very, very deep into this idea of what Adam caused and what Jesus set right. I'd encourage you to do some homework on that, Romans chapter 5. But essentially what he's saying is that Jesus' resurrection was not a personal victory for one man over death. We could applaud that and go, what a miracle. That guy died and he came back to life. But Jesus' resurrection was not merely a victory over death for one man named Jesus. It was victory over death for every person who would put faith in him. The good news is not just that Jesus raised to life, it is that by believing in him, we also come to life in his name. Hebrews 10 says that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Echoes here of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I love that Paul says in verse 26 of, of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And I just picture Paul thinking through the work and the life and ministry of Jesus. He's casting out demons, so he's already got power over the spiritual realm. And then he calms a storm, so Jesus has power over nature. And then he's healing blindness and sickness, so he has power over disease and illness. And he's demonstrated all of that authority. And Paul says, but the greatest enemy that he faced was the last one. Over Christmas, our family got a Nintendo Switch. And on this Nintendo Switch, all of the old games are in an in a online library. It's, it's marvelous, magical. 
So we got Tech Mobile, we got Excite Bike, we got Donkey Kong, we got it all. But the one that I was most delighted to find is that on this library of games on the Nintendo Switch is Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, circa 1987. And if you've ever played Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, you know that as Little Mac, the character, you have to face one by one all of these really bizarre and absurd characters, and you left hook, right hook, left hook, there's a whole system to it, you got to beat them all. And if you make it to the final heavyweight, you fight Mike Tyson himself. Now, I've never made it that far as a child or an adult, but there are rumors that if you defeat Mike Tyson, your television just explodes. Like, they just... (laughs) Paul says, look, Jesus faced down disease and he beat it. Jesus spoke to a storm and he calmed it. Jesus cast out demons and they fled in terror. And then Jesus went into the heavyweight match with death itself. He was crucified on a Roman cross. Paul says, good news. He defeated that enemy too. He gave that one the knockout punch. Death itself has been laid in the grave. No one anymore has to have hopelessness. No one anymore has to lose someone that they love like I did in high school with a parent and go, that's the last I'll see of them. No, it's not. The good news is life has the final word and not death. Friends, what people would we be if we didn't believe that? I'm called on to preach funerals. What what pastor would I be if I didn't offer the word of hope? See, people think that it works like this. We live for 70 or 80 or 90 years and then we're dead forever. No, no, no. You're dying for 70 or 80 or 90 years and then you live forever by faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But that good news as good as it is, is not good until you make it personal to you. An old pastor that I used to sit under his teaching, uh, one of the most gifted Bible teachers, perhaps the most gifted that I've ever encountered, Dr. Randy Smith, he would often say these words, the gospel is not that Jesus died and rose again, but that because Jesus died and rose again, we can have eternal life through faith. And that's an important distinction because even though it is challenging to our logic to believe in a resurrected Savior, there are people that make that jump who are still not saved. They go, yeah, yeah, I believe Jesus died. Yeah, I I even believe he raised to life. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to do me. I'm going to live my life. No, no, no. The gospel is I know Jesus died, was buried, was raised to life. And now he's come to life in my heart. I've received him by faith. This is why when people are baptized at Horizon West Church and at all of the campuses of First Orlando, the singular statement we ask them to make by faith is, Jesus is Lord. It's not enough that it happened. James says the demons believe it happened. They were there trembling when he cast them out, celebrating at the crucifixion, and then falling faint at the resurrection. They experienced it too but they don't have faith. They don't yield themselves to the lordship of Jesus. I want to invite you, I want to encourage you, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, then that hope of life forever with him is not yours. It's not yours until you, by faith, take hold of the risen Savior Jesus, believing and submitting to him. I want to close this part of the service by by making these things practical because as excited as I get about the truth of the resurrection, I also want to make this practical to us. So I'm going to close with with two very practical things. I'm going to say them as I will statements because I want you to adopt them for yourself. Here they are. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, I will 
choose the hard road that leads to life rather than the easy road that leads to death. There's nothing easier in the world. There is nothing easier for you to do in 2024. Keep your Bible on the shelf. Stay home, sleep in on Sunday mornings. Snap at your kids, don't ask forgiveness. Scream at your wife, think she deserves it. Lay on the couch, let other people work and give you money. Like, there's nothing easier than the road that leads to death. We will not choose that. Jesus did not choose that. But we will choose by faith in the resurrection to enter each day saying, Jesus, I choose the narrow road that leads to life because I know that the resurrection is true. Secondly, I will live alert to the way of God and not be found asleep at the wheel of my life. Most people, Henry David Thoreau said, most people live lives of quiet desperation. Day one, check. Day two, check. 2023, done. 2024, over soon. Just plodding through life. No purpose, no hope, no alertness. I want us as a church to take a different approach. I want myself and my family to take a different approach. But to enter every day saying, Jesus, I'm awake. I'm alert. Not, not living by circumstance or accident. The neighbors that you put in our lives, the people that we're doing church with, the coaches on my son's baseball team and my daughter's volleyball team. Jesus, you put us here for a reason. I want to be awake and alert. Paul says at the end of this, his final conclusion in the passage we've looked at, he says, uh, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. In other words, to the Corinthians, all this nonsense that you're doing, all that chapter five stuff and the chapter eight stuff, all of that, the reason you stop isn't because it's more moral to do one thing over another. You stop sinning. You stop walking in the way of death because you're following a Savior who leads us in the way of life. So we repent, we follow after Jesus, and we follow him to life. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.